Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I want to thank my sponsors, Topps, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So here's uh, an episode for your listening enjoyment. Welcome, Brian. <laughs> I appreciate all the work you put in on this. I, I always say I'm a generalist because I've done all the sports and all the eras, but 48 49 Leaf baseball was a particular interest of mine. So I'm always interested in going deeper. And I thought I was going deep. And then you contacted me. And I think you've got some additional depth. Welcome to the show. And uh, tell us what you've learned on this journey to take the mystery out of what is a really amazing set. It's an interesting thing because I collected for years and probably eight years ago was the first time I crossed paths with it. I came from more of the fine arts background. It all started for me with the George Vico card, number 47, which kind of looks more like an Andy Warhol type image. I was just struck by the aesthetics of it, and that's what got me going on it. As I started to dig in, I'm an active member of Net54. There's lots of knowledge on there, and people like Ted Zenodakis, who's got that kind of firsthand anecdotal experience of having bought the cards and everything like that. As I was acquiring the cards, those first 49, that's an easy get. And then you get into the second 49, it gets really tough really quick. The curveball came for me with the Jackie Robinson, because when I picked up my Jackie, I noticed it was different. That started me looking at things more from my background in the fine arts world and lithography. And that started me down the rabbit hole. There's a lot of information out there that hasn't either been connected or it's tough to put together and be like, oh, okay, that's actually the way it was. Reference to the lawsuits, it's an interesting way that they happened. I think it also coincides with the release of the cards. There's basically two injunctions that Bauman put against Leaf, first of which happened March 22nd, 1949, in reference to the actual packaging. The verbiage on the Leaf packaging was very similar to the Bauman packaging. But the second one was May 4th, and that one was in newspapers from Oil City, PA to the Eugene Register out here in Oregon. An interesting thing, that one was so widespread, and that was in reference to the player agreements that basically Bauman had 272 players, both professional and Pacific Coast League players, they had agreements with. Now, both these were settled outside of court, so there's no real record of what actually happened. But the second one wasn't against Leaf proper. It was against six distributors out of Philadelphia of Leaf. So in my mind, that says that they basically shut down the East Coast distribution of the cards, which falls in line with what you had said previously, that short print run you found exclusively in the Great Lakes. And Ted had also said they had also popped up in the Boston region. When you can start going through and checking things off as far as, okay, here's the proof that actually happened, it helps with the overall narrative of why and where. And it's been the driving force for me on all of this, figuring out why the cards were tough to come by, why there was only... 98 cards produced, why they were skip numbered. There's a lot of fun rabbit holes to kind of run down with that. First of all, on the legal front, you are saying the first lawsuit was March of 49. Yep. March 22nd, 1949 showed up in the Jacksonville Daily, which is right outside of Chicago. That's when the cards were coming out. Yep. Spring of 49 was at least what is perceived as being the release which again is problematic with the 48 copyrights on the, right. on the, the cards, it, which is kind of my thinking back in the day, they were considered 48 because they had 48 copyrights. As I understand lawsuits, being an expert witness for many years, if the lawsuit was filed on March 22nd, it could have been threatened 
much earlier. Sure. Been cease and desist that were ignored or storm clouds or trouble brewing. But when they did it, it's no longer, we're maybe going to do this. Once they've done it, it seemed like they tried to get them stopped right away. Yeah. I don't know why they would have had to file a second lawsuit, which I think had additional teeth in joining from the players. Again, people don't realize that the Bowman PCLs were really tough yeah. from that era. And it was just a step below the American and National Leagues. Interesting Warren Spahn. We think of him as a young guy in 48 or 49 because we think that's his rookie card. But he probably was late 20s. Yeah. Been in the war. Yeah, it was Spawn, it was Elmer Vallo, it was Johnny Mize, a bunch of big names that were in on that. Interesting that there were two injunctions that were thrown at him. I think the first was, oh, these guys are trying to grab some of our business. Let's get them to back off. That second one's really more targeted because it was actually at the distributors, six of them based out of Germantown, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philly, to shut them down from the distribution standpoint. A great article written. Sports Collectors Digest from Gary Vichek, who in 2009 wrote an article about the DeMarie die cuts. I don't know if you're familiar with those. It's George. Okay. He actually interviewed Marshall Leaf, which is Saul's son, because when you start drawing the line that Saul and Harry, who were the brothers, in 21, they moved from New York out to Chicago. They started up the candy and confectionery business. They had all kinds of businesses, and they would name them after foremans of the companies. So the Deets Gum Company that produced the DeMarie cards, <laughs> they were actually Leaf. The R301 Overland cards, Overland was Leaf. So the Leaf cards in 48 that were produced, 49 at the market, were not just a one-off. They were producing cards like crazy because according to the article, Saul was a businessman. He was a candy man and saw cards as a way to preserve the gum. And they had deals through Overland with Disney. So it's like they were in the card company, but they were a candy company producing cards, but they were candy first. So I think that leans into when the cards were actually released. In the other podcast, you alluded to the fact that the late trades and the things that show up on the cards happened in late 48. You're talking about MVP awards that are coming out in November and that would land right in the time that as a candy company, you're getting ready for Christmas. They probably went through and wrote a bunch of those backs and that's why they carry a 48 copyright and then picked it back up in 49, produced it, shipped it, off it went. We understand branding a little bit different now in the 21st century. Of building a strong brand, but you actually have, I think, some lawsuit protection if you have many smaller standalone brands, which you're saying the leaf entities, by naming these things differently, it makes it confusing for us now, yep. naming these entities, and maybe they were separate standalone units. Because when leaf was shut down with these baseball cards, the Demery and the Overland Candy, those were one shots. Now that you're mentioning it, all of the things that the Leaf brothers did under this umbrella were poor production quality. Oh, yeah. You haven't named a single one that wasn't poor production quality. No, not at all. There's a bunch of facts and there's a bunch of anecdotal stuff you can pick up on. You can nail it down. You can check the box. For the 48, 49 release, all right, we've got anecdotal on when things came out. The injunctions, information's out there. You can lock that down. The consolidation of Overland and all the other companies into Leaf brands in 47, Yep, you can lock that down because I went to the, the Chicago History Museum and was able to actually go through the paperwork on that. The only smoking gun that I haven't been able to find is who produced the cards. That, to me, 
is the most interest because I think that there's a functional usage of how the cars were produced that yielded the kind of variations that are out there. I think the low production quality, my theory is they were produced in-house. Because if you look at the, what Overland produced as a candy, they produced the malt balls, the Whoppers. If you look at Whopper packaging from late 40s, early 50s, it's the same stock the cards were produced on. I think they were taking the presses, they were running the actual packaging on and running the cards on them. So they were doing a two-color process hit on a packaging for the candies. And I think they were just striking them on bigger sheets and running the cards in between press runs and then packaging them on site. Because as you start digging into Leaf's presence in North Chicago, most of the people they were hiring were people that were packaging boxes on site. There's some great images the History Museum has of just stacks and stacks of boxes they have on site and people, locals sitting there working because of the incentives that they had, the factory, everything that ran from music to paid time off and everything like that. But they were producing the candies and they were packaging them all on site in North Cicero. That's my conclusion as well. I don't think they were outsourcing the printing. I do believe these cards were printed in the same manner that they printed and folded boxes and yep. die cut. And there could have been more than one location. Nowadays, we think about printing cards these huge operations with all these special inserting and layering and all that. This was very simple. And the card stock is not great. So no different than a box, the thickness of the card stock and the quality level when you're not outsourcing and the same kind of a press check you would do, which I think they were deficient in oh, yeah. for a box that you're mass producing and the box isn't the thing. The box right. is what you keep the candy in. Yep, exactly. They exactly. actually chopped it up and put them in there. The registration is bad. Off-centering is terrible. The card stock is terrible. Real condition sensitivity. So I don't think there is a third-party printer. If there would be more than one printing place that Leaf owned, it was part of their thing. And they want to keep their people busy. They're not going to outsource it. But there may have been more than one set of plates. There definitely was. The most important thing that I keep trying to impress on people is that there was at least two runs and stepping aside from color variations, I'm talking actual physical changes to the plate. There was two different runs, if not three. So I would call it a late printing. I've had conversations with PSA trying to get them to recognize the late print and they won't do it. But what's funny is that it's already being recognized in the Kent Peterson because there's a black hat and a red hat variation on that. In that late printing, they went through and they affected not only the black plate, which carried all the detail on it, but they also affected the color plate. And the way you can tell is that all of the hats in that late printing have all the details struck out of them. So when I was talking about the Jackie Robinson that I had picked up earlier, when I got that Jackie and first thing I looked at was his hat and his hat had zero detail to it, bright blue, but it had zero detail to it. Same way Peterson was done, you can actually go through and see like on the stand usual, there's a black hat and a red hat version of the stand usual. You can actually see the mask line where they actually went out and removed all the detail from that black plate. But the change also goes a little bit deeper in the actual color plates, because what you'll see is a bunch of different tabs that will come down on the backgrounds that essentially connect the background colors to the nameplate. Babe Ruth has it. Phil Rizzuto has it. A bunch of guys have that kind of change that's added to it. And those are physical changes to the plates. So in my book, that's a technical variation because it's an actual physical change to the plate that affects the look of the card. The information you sent me, which I also have my own cards, but I found that to be compelling. 
Okay, not to speak for PSA, but being a competitor of PSA and trying to determine what we can grade and what's a legitimate variation, and certainly in the cataloging we did. I think you came at PSA in too broad of a manner. I don't think they're going to say that there are 49 variations. But you make a very compelling case that there are additional variations besides the Hermansky and the Aberson and the Peterson, these other things that are established. I am agreeing with you on the side border, narrower image thing. That, to me, suggests a different setup. Okay, it's the same art, but the way it was laid out or pasted up, the original artwork to make new plates, they may have messed with it a little bit. So I do believe there were two different places or two different things. However, the other stuff and where PSA is having heartburn is that the blacklist, it doesn't have to be a plate change. It can be just a poor supervisor of the printing press that didn't notice that the black ink was running low or running out. And that provides the detail, even on the red. When you have red, there's some black in the red. When you have dark blue, that's because there's some black in the dark blue. Many of those you're pointing out, I think PSA or Beckett could explain away. That could be just a printing flaw is recurrent because the presses keep going. And it's pretty clear Leaf didn't care that. I perceive they didn't care that print quality. (laughs) And I don't think any kids back in 1948 or 49, let's say, were turning back in the cards. No, definitely not. So the additional outlining and detail, that's the absence of black ink. I don't think it's changing the plates in some of those. I have to send you an example. Ted had an image of an uncut sheet. And this is where I say there was multiple plate changes because the Aberson that you called out is one of those things. He's on that uncut sheet. It's got short sleeves. Now, Ted said that when he pulled his packs, and his is a great example because since he bought the cards enlisted and his mom and I think his aunt kept his cards and they came back, he said all the Aversons that he had were long sleeve and no red hat Petersons. So there's a change that happened in the in-between, but then as you get into the later issues, the removal of the details in the hat is a lack of black, but you can actually see it. Basically, I took it into Photoshop and struck out all the colors except for blue and black out of the stand usual. Even though everything else is still there, you can see the removal of the details in the hats. 